Where's Mike? It certainly does look different up here, doesn't it? You know, it reminds me of the first time I went to the county pool and I got up on the high dive. Anybody from Lancaster remember the high dive? It looked easy when you looked at it and then you got up there and you're like, wait a second, I want to go back down. But I want to thank you all for inviting me here this morning and for allowing me this opportunity to share with you from God's word this morning to tell you a little bit about what God is doing in our area and also what he's doing right here within your own midst. And I also want to thank Greg Funk, who has kind of taken me on as a mentee and has been imparting his wisdom and knowledge into my life. And I want you to know how much I appreciate you and for extending this opportunity to me. Thank you. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Daniel DeLeon, and I'm a native of Lancaster City, born and raised my entire life. And eight years ago, I made my residence in a dark, damp, and dirty alleyway right in the heart of the city of Lancaster. In other words, folks, I was homeless. And my homelessness came at the tail end of 14 years of chronic drug and alcohol abuse. I too, like Mike, trying to cope with the environment in which I was being brought in brought up in, turned to drugs and alcohol as a means of comfort. One of the earliest memories I have of my mother is of her trying to take her own life in front of me when I was six. And I came to find out later on in life that my father allegedly was molesting my two sisters throughout their adolescent life. And at that time, I didn't know how to deal with that. So drugs and alcohol were the only thing that I could turn to in the context in which I was being raised, try to alleviate some of that pain and suffering that I was experiencing even at a young age. During those years, I sincerely desired to change, but I didn't know how. And I didn't have anybody in my life that could show me. But today I'm happy to say that through a series of events and God-loving people. I eventually received the love, compassion, and direction that I so desperately needed, and it changed my life. My journey of healing began in 2007 at the Water Street Rescue Mission. After spending nearly two and a half years as a part of their program, since then I have graduated their program And have had the privilege of receiving a higher education and graduating from Lancaster Bible College in 2013 with high honors. Now, now I'm searching for Dr. Keim. I heard he, where is he at? There he is. That man put me through a lot. Four years of sitting under his Greek teaching, and I loved every minute of it, but it was the hardest thing I ever did. But I really appreciate that, man. It's one of my favorite profs at Lancaster Bible College. I heard you go here. (laughs) Actively, I'm continuing my education by pursuing a master's degree in theological studies at Reformed Theological Seminary. And on top of this, I was blessed with a beautiful, God-loving woman who is now my wife for over five years, and together we have three wonderful children. Through them, God is showing me what a real family looks like, because before this, I never knew it. 
But in all this, my story isn't even close to being over. You see, as, late, as of lately, I feel compelled. I feel called to go back into the darkness to help others who are like me. So as of recently, God has began to completely redirect my path in life. And as a result, so much is changing and it's happening so rapidly. But before I tell you more about that, I want to switch gears for just a moment. And I want to share a burden that has been bubbling up within my heart over the last few years. And as I share it with you, I'm sure it will become a concern of yours as well. Now, according to numerous national statistics and recent polls, churches in the United States appear, appear to be in a rapid and steady state of decline in our country. According to an in-depth 15-year-long analysis conducted by the Francis A. Schaefer of Church Leadership and Development, and I quote, listen to this, every year, more than 4,000 churches close their doors compared to just over 1,000 new church starts. 4,000 close compared to just 1,000 starts. Do the math. The quote continues, every year 2.7 million church members fall into inactivity. This translates into the realization that people are leaving the church. The quote continues, half of all churches, get this, half of all churches in the U.S. did not add any new members to their ranks in the last two years. In 1995, roughly 20.5% of Americans frequently attended church. In 2002, that number dropped down to 18%. And given the current trajectory, if we extrapolate from the current decline, in the year 20 and 50, that number will be reduced down to 11%. But if you factor in the population increase and the exponential decline in our churches, that number, given our current trajectory, will be much much lower. So what does all of this mean? Well, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see the writing on the wall. Brothers and sisters, unless something changes, the church in the United States will soon fade into obscurity. To any discerning mind, it appears as though our lampstand is being taken away. Now, according to these same polls, one of the major contributing factors to this sad reality is our society's perception that the church has become completely irrelevant in addressing the modern problems of our world. You see, many in our society consider the church to be disconnected and perhaps even indifferent to the sufferings here in our own country and abroad around the world. So in the perception of many, they see us as not caring about the poor and helping those in need. They see us as being a social group that meets once a week to get together to discuss an ancient book which has no relevance to today's world. And they see us as being part of the old scaffolding of a bygone age 
which now serves no purpose in our society and therefore should be taken down. Brothers and sisters, I am burdened by this deep within my heart because I was reached by Christians. I was helped by Christians. And I was loved by Christians. And now, after all these years of fighting it, I come happily into the church to discover that she is apparently dying. You know how that makes me feel sometimes? It's, it's almost like I have this picture in my mind that all of my life I've been searching for my mother so that I could build a relationship with her. And I finally catch up to her. And I visit her on her deathbed. I, for one, cannot sit back idly and watch the church in this country just fade away. Not after all I've been through. I cannot continue to simply huddle on Sunday mornings and never actually get out there and run the play. And I cannot be okay with the world perceiving us as being a people that doesn't really care. What about you? As you ponder that question, please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. I want to show you something. The passage that I'm about to read is a very familiar passage. It's typically referred to as the parable of the Good Samaritan. If you've been coming to church for some time, then there's no doubt that you're quite familiar with this passage. But perhaps by way of reminder, let me point out some things to you that you may already know. Luke chapter 10, we're going to be beginning in verse 25. And this is what we read beginning in verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He, Jesus replied, how do you read it? He, the expert in the law, answered, well, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all of your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he, the expert in the law, wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Let's pause here for a moment. Luke is telling us about an occasion when an expert in the law stood up to test him. Now, this was not an uncommon thing in Jesus' time. Jewish rabbis and scribes would often have these kinds of theological debates publicly. So I don't get from this that this expert in the law was seeking to be outright malicious. Because in the parallel account recorded in the Gospel of Mark, we actually see that Jesus commends this man by stating that he and his answer was not far from the kingdom. The interesting thing about this passage 
is that this expert in the law knew the right answer to Jesus' question. But perhaps because he himself felt a bit convicted and maybe even a bit cornered by Jesus' direct statement when he says, do this and you will live. It's as if he continued the questioning in hopes of trying to find a way out of it. As a side note, one of my hobbies over the years has been listening to and even occasionally conducting public debates on the existence of God. It's not that I like debating people. It's more so that I, I was, you know, when I was brought up, I always had these questions about the existence of God. And in the context in which I was growing up, nobody could really provide me any adequate answers for those questions. So when I became a Christian, I've spent the last eight years digging deeply into these questions. A little while ago, I actually debated a professor of philosophy from the University of Millersville in a little Bible study that I lead on Thursday evenings in a house. It was an awesome night. We packed like 70 people into this living room. We had a meal and we we had this great interchange. It's one of those nights you wish you could just relive over and over and over again. But as an amateur debater, I can tell you that one common tactic in debating when you're feeling squeezed is to get your opponent to try to define what they mean by what they mean, right? You see, if you feel cornered in a debate, a tactical way out of that is to continue to ask them questions in hopes of finding a way of escaping. So hypothetically, imagine I'm debating somebody and I'm, I'm bringing forth my arguments for the existence of God and their, their sound, their logical, their cogent arguments, and the person is feeling the weight of this and he doesn't really know how to respond. Well, one tactic is to say, okay, yeah, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but what do you mean by existence? All right? oh, okay, well, by existence, I mean such and such. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, but what do you mean by that, right? And if you do that enough and effectively long enough, soon enough, you'll have your opponent kind of wandering off in la-la land somewhere, way off the point, until you can latch on to something else and re-engage the debate. That's actually happened to me. That's how I know this. So here you almost get this sense that this expert in the law who would have also been an expert in debating is feeling a bit cornered and perhaps a bit convicted by Jesus' response. And so he says, okay, okay, but tell me, what exactly do you mean by neighbor? In verse 30, in reply, Jesus says this, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by him on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Pausing again. Here, in brilliant Jesus fashion, Jesus responds to the expert's attempts to justify himself by first showing him what loving your neighbor does not look like. 
Here Jesus highlights two people. Both of which were very religious in Jesus' day. One was a priest. The priests were responsible for conducting the daily sacrifices in the temple. From every indication that we get, he is passing on the road to Jericho, which means he's coming down from Jerusalem, which means he probably had finished his daily activities of offering sacrifices at the temple. So literally, he's coming from the temple right after doing all of these acts of worship to God. And he sees this man on the side of the road and he passes by him. The Levites were like temple servants. They helped and assisted the priest in the daily sacrifices. In modern day equivalents, it would have been as if Jesus had said this. A pastor, after coming out of church, was going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by him. So too, a deacon, when he had come to the place and he saw him, passed by on the other side. And as the words settle in, Jesus continues in verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to meet where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Pausing again, here is where Jesus adds a little bit of a twist into this parable. The Samaritans were considered to be heathens. They were a mixed race typically disliked by the pure Jews of Jesus' time. And here, the hero of Jesus' story was not the religious folks, but a Samaritan. It would have been as though Jesus had said this to the people standing by. The pastor passed by and the deacon passed by. But when this unbeliever saw this man on the side of the road, he took pity on him. You feel that? And this is where the religious folks standing by would have started to feel the sting. We go on to read in verse 34. He, the Samaritan, went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, two days worth of wages, and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. And now Jesus, perhaps beginning to redirect his gaze back to this expert in the law, concludes with this final question in verse 36. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Perhaps with his head downcast and his heart beginning to thump, this expert in the law responds in verse 37 by saying, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, bringing it full circle again, go and do likewise. 
So to sum this up, what this real neighbor did, he showed compassion for this broken man when nobody else would. He bandaged the wounds of this man who was injured when others just passed him by on the side of the road. He picked him up and carried him to a safe place where he could find the healing that he needed. And he entrusted the wounded man into the care of an able innkeeper at his own expense. This is what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. This is what it means to make a difference in the lives of others. This is what the priests sidestepped. And this is what the Levite didn't want any part of. And this is what the expert in the law tried to avoid and get out of. But this, brothers and sisters, is what Jesus commands of us. And yet, according to the reports that we're getting in today, they tell us that the church is in decline largely because the world perceives us as the ones who are passing by on the other side of the road. They see us as being those who are too busy in our religious activity to have time to care. They see us as being folks who will split hairs over our traditions, but will not lift a finger to mend the broken of our society. And so I must ask, in light of this parable, And all of our religious activity and all of our concerns and passions over our traditions, do we hear the words of our Lord in this parable? Are we too busy being about our religious activity that we just can't hear him anymore? Regardless of what the world perceives of the church today, brothers and sisters, it wasn't always this way. Throughout history, the church has been involved in some of the greatest acts of compassion which have transformed the world as we know it. Did you ever wonder how Christianity became the most widely spread faith in the world? Well, many people will tell you that Christianity became a major force in this world. When Roman Emperor Constantine signed the Edict of Milan in 313 AD, officially tolerating Christianity as a religio licita, which was to say a permitted religion throughout the Roman Empire. You add to this Constantine's own conversion to Christianity a year prior to this, and historians will point us back to this time period to show us the exponential growth of Christianity into the West. That's what the textbooks tell us. But regardless of how influential the supposed conversion of the Roman emperor was in spreading Christianity, there was an even more powerful and greater force at work which really won the West to Christianity. And that power, folks, is the power of Christian love. You see, just 60 years Prior to the Edict of Milan, a major plague erupted in what was at the time the third largest city in the entire Roman Empire. The city 
was Alexandria, Egypt. And for reasons that are still not fully understood or known today, a major plague swept through the entire region and surrounding areas. And although they tried, nobody could find a cure for this disease. Almost every person that was infected with the disease died a painful death. So understandably, those who had not contracted the disease began to flee away from the city, leaving behind their dying parents and children and loved ones to die on their own. Can you imagine this scenario? Estimates tell us that two out of every three people living in this area died as a result of this plague. Can you wrap your mind around that? And imagine yourself being in this city knowing that two out of every three people are dying from this disease and you don't have it yet. What would you do? Prior to this, many Christians had gone into hiding because they were being severely persecuted throughout this region. They were being executed and imprisoned just for being Christians. So they fled the city before the plague hit and went into hiding and were meeting in caves in secret places. But when they heard about this plague and when they heard about how everybody was fleeing the city and leaving people behind to die on their own, they did something. And it doesn't matter how many times I think about this, I can't wrap my mind around it. They did something that is absolutely unthinkable. They actually went into the city to search for and care for those who were dying, even though many of them were their former persecutors. I don't know about you, but can you imagine that? So they went into the city. And as a result, this is what happened. Even though there was no known cure for this disease, many of those who were taken care of by these Christians, just by receiving the basic elements of food and water and companionship, tended to fully recover. Many of the Christians who went into care for their former persecuted and persecutors ended up contracting the disease themselves. And many of them died as a result. And the reason why they died is because there was nobody left to care for them. So in a real way, these Christians absorbed the sickness of their former persecutors and died so that they could live. I don't know about you, but that sounds a lot like Jesus to me. Now, when the plague subsided, the only remaining people in the city were either the Christians who had survived or those who were nursed back to health by these Christians. And when the family members returned and they found out what these once hated Christians had done for their loved ones, it changed everything. Everything. So let's snap back into our day and age. 
Folks, one of the major reasons why people don't perceive the church as being relevant is because they don't see our love, according to these polls. Maybe it's just because we have not had the opportunity to do something great in our time. But now I'm here to tell you that a new plague is upon the horizon and that our opportunity is upon us. The plague of our time and the robber of our age, if you are able to see it, is the rising epidemic of addiction. Did you know that one out of every four Americans suffers from some form of addiction? That means that whether you're an addict or not, every person in this country in some way is affected by addiction. Nearly 100,000 men and women lost their lives to drug overdoses in 2014. And that number is rapidly and steadily increasing every year. I mean, just look at these charts. This is what they're revealing to us. This is no longer a problem that is out there somewhere that you hear about and you read about in the papers. It's everywhere. And if you haven't experienced it yet, and I hope this is not a true statement, but my suspicion is you will begin to experience it within your own household if things don't change. So this leads me to some exciting and yet challenging news that I came here to share with you this morning. As I told you in the beginning of this talk, I feel as though God has prepared me and is now sending me back into the darkness to lead many brothers and sisters out into the light. As such, I have partnered with like-minded men and women, many of which are from this very church, to begin a project in our area unlike anything that we have ever seen before. We are beginning a movement of Christian-based recovery houses which will seek to partner with local churches, churches such as Grace Baptists, churches who have the compassion and the foresight to address the rising epidemic of our time. This is a new ministry which was developed in response and in anticipation of the rising typhoon of our time. I think far too often we as the church want to get involved in something, so we go out into the waters and we slap them and try to create waves. I think a far wiser way is to go and look upon the horizon and watch for the swells and position ourselves to be ready for it. And that's exactly what we're doing. Currently, we have three houses. Greg said two, but we're opening a new one Monday. We've got two more that are hopefully going to be coming by the summer. Each time, or each one of these houses will be adopted by a different local church. Currently, we have over a dozen residents, many of which prior to coming to us have never stepped foot into a church in their entire lives but many of which are now giving their lives over to Christ and becoming very active within these churches. I'm very pleased to announce and publicly acknowledge that Grace is one of these adopting churches. So we are your neighbors, literally. As we continue to develop our program and fill our houses, you can expect to come into contact with more folks such as Mike Burgos, such as Chuck Moore, And such as myself. Now this project didn't begin with me. It began with your very own Frank Korber. Is he here today? I don't see him there. Oh, he's somewhere. He's hiding. 
There he is. There he is up there. It began with Frank, and he, along with Chuck Moore, started a nonprofit organization called Cardatizo. Cardatizo, Kime, you'll like this. <laughs> I didn't know it either. <laughs> He's giving me this look like Cardatizo. <clears throat> Cardatizo is a Greek word which means to mend, to restore, and to equip for service. Along with Frank and Chuck, other folks from Grace, such as Bernard Nichols, Rich Wallen, Pam Carr, and Gloria Groff, have all been volunteering their time and resources by participating as board members in this great mission. Under the umbrella work of Cardatiza, we are establishing a network of recovery houses called the Way Recovery Houses. And our goal is to provide a safe residential environment where those battling through various addictions can receive the structure, accountability, and support that they need to be victorious in this great fight of our time. Our vision is to provide a pathway for people to reach their full potential. And the only way that we know how to, to, to do that is to lead men and women closer to Christ and integrating them into his body, the church. And that's where y'all come in. Folks, I've never been one for subtleties. Point blank, we need your help to address this crisis of our time. We have very little resources at this point. Personally, when I felt the call to do this, I left behind my own fairly successful and rapidly growing landscape company to join in on this mission. As such, I've taken on the directorship, and I'm being treated as a domestic missionary, and hence, I must raise my own funding. Now, God is supplying our needs, but right now, my wife and I are living on faith, so we need to, need to raise more funding. On top of the financial need, and this is even more important to me, in reflection of Jesus' parable, many of our residents have been robbed, beaten, and left for dead by drugs and alcohol. So they desperately need to know that somebody in this world cares about them. Unfortunately, too many folks have already crossed over on the other side of the road, leaving them for dead. So like the Good Samaritan... In Jesus' parable, you can help us by showing compassion for these men and women when no one else will. You can help to bandage their wounds by showing them the love of Christ. And you can help by carrying them to a safe place where they can find the healing that they need. Practically speaking, and this is where the rubber meets the road. They need people who are willing to cook a meal and come in and eat with them. To show them what a family looks like. They need mentors who are willing to walk alongside of them and teach them about Jesus and teach them about life. Maybe they just need you to be a friend and love them and greet them with a warm smile or a firm handshake or a great big bear hug when you see them walking in through your doors. Most of all, they need you to pray for them. And folks, I need you to pray for me. This is hard. This is very difficult. And without your, your support in prayers, I won't make it. In short, folks, we for once just need a good Samaritan. We need a neighbor that loves us as they love themselves. 
My guys need to know the love of Jesus. They need to feel it in their heart. They need to experience it through you. I can say this, having participated in the Discovery Recovery Group for the past few weeks here at Grace Baptist, and feeling the love that this church has for the men and women in recovery, I have full confidence that Grace Baptist will rise to the occasion as you already have and are doing to help us restore, mend, and prepare the broken of our time. So in closing, let me just end with this. The world is watching us. Remember those statistics. And what I shared about the way that the world is perceiving us currently. They are watching. We took over one of our houses from a man who was running recovery houses and did everything in his power to dissuade men from connecting with Christ. And the reason why is because he doesn't think that leading people to Jesus is important for helping people in addiction. And I get every sense from him in his condescending attitude towards us that he believes that our great aspirations of leading many out of addictions and to Christ is going to blow up in our face. I feel it from him when he talks to me. If there's anything, folks, that gives me confidence that this movement is going to change many lives in our area and is going to radically transform our churches in this area, it's the knowledge that behind every great movement of God throughout history, there were those who stood back on the sidelines and said, it cannot and will not happen. That actually encourages me. I'm excited to see what happens when you put my God to the test. So by the love of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, will you help us to prove them wrong? Just like those early Christians in Alexandria, will you bring forth your sacrificial love by taking this plague of addiction head on? I have a great feeling that this movement is going to change many lives in our area and the world is going to take notice. And it's not just going to change the lives of those struggling with addiction, brothers and sisters. It's going to change God's people who often struggle with spiritual apathy and complacency and indifference. Folks, it's my firm belief that our churches need this just as much as these guys and gals need church. I have so much more that I can and want to say, but I want to honor your time. I will be available in the back for questions. I have an email sign-up sheet if you would like more information. I also have a mentor sheet that you can sign up. I'll send you the information on what it means to be a mentor, how you can participate in this great mission. All of that will be in the back table on the right-hand side when you go out. God willing, perhaps, over the next year, I hope that you will see a lot more of me as I come and visit with you because we're partners in this great mission. 
Maybe someday, who knows, maybe I can teach a Sunday school class and get into more detail about what we're doing at the Way Recovery Houses and how you guys can help in participating to address this great plague of our time. But for now, I just, my only objective here this morning was to stir your hearts. Was to stir your hearts and put this before you and whet your appetite for how you can get involved. As a last word, may it never be said of us that we were a people who passed by on the other side of the road. Whatever we do unto the least of these, Jesus tells us, we do unto him. Heavenly Father, I pray that by your mercy and grace that you would help us. Deep down inside, we have a desire to get involved. We have a desire to make a difference in our time, and yet we're afraid. May we learn from the examples of those who came before us. May we learn from your Son, who gave up his own life so that we could live. And you, by your grace and the power of your spirit, may you help us to live that out in our day and our age because our world needs to see it. We thank you in your son's name. Amen.